Matthew 27, I want to begin here with verse 11. It says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing up against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single, to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked him, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him the message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who's called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put, on his put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. May God add his blessing to that word. You can be seated. Last year, uh, I guess it was about a year ago, maybe just a little bit over, my nephew and his wife, who were recently married, having a child on the way, went in to sign for a new home that they were trying to buy in Marysville, Ohio. How many of you have gone through that process of buying a home? Most of us, many of us anyway. Well, their grandparents and their parents had fronted them some money so that they could make the purchase with a hefty down payment of many tens of thousands of dollars. And so in order to prepare for the signing day, before the signing day, they were to wire some money to the title company with a number that had been given them by email. Well, on the day of signing, as you would expect, they were excited. Everything seemed to be in order. They signed the papers. They are ready to, for this new chapter of their lives. When after it's all over, the agent says to them, you know, there is just one more thing. We still haven't received your money. Well, surprised, they said, what? We, we, we followed directions. We sent it yesterday. Well, we haven't received it. Well, after some investigation, it was learned that this young couple had fallen victim to a scam in Russia. 
the email they had uh, received looked legit. It had the logo of the title company, the expected amount, and was completely false. And so tens upon tens of thousands of dollars had been suddenly stolen from them. And of course, if they were to buy this home, they needed to come up with tens and tens of thousands of dollars more to actually do it. Well, when I heard this story, my heart sank for them. The FBI has been involved, but basically the money is gone. And there is right now some litigation going on with the title company in regards to who is responsible. But after many more thousands of dollars, it looks like only the lawyers and the Russians are the ones winning. Have you ever been ripped off? Doesn't it just cause your blood to boil when that happens? When, when somebody cheats you, you're the victim of injustice. Maybe somebody cheated you out of a large sum of money and there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe you play by the rules, but you end up sitting on the bench while the star is on drugs and seems to be doing just fine. Perhaps you've gone through a bitter divorce and your ex is living it up and you've been left with most of the debt and all of the responsibility. In fact, there's an old country western song that said, she got the gold mine, I got the shaft. I, uh, I think about the drunk driver who walks away and uh, the loved one who does not. Sometimes the truth is this world is so unfair, so unjust. No one, however, has ever suffered more injustice than Jesus of Nazareth. On that final night, he was the victim of lies, deceit, physical abuse, cowardice, double crosses, and yet he never lost his poise or his sense of purpose. In fact, one of the things that we realize as we look at these stories is we begin to understand how important it is to, to, under, to appreciate that Jesus has indeed set for us an example of how we are to deal with injustice when we inevitably face it. 1 Peter 2.21 says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so that night, Jesus faced as many as five different trials that would eventually lead him to the cross. And I think as we look at those trials, as we look at the injustice he faced, we're going to learn something about our own ways of handling mistreatment. John tells us about Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. You'll remember that Jesus went to the garden there to pray, but in the middle of the night, he hears an angry mob approaching. He goes to the gate to meet them. He surrenders willingly. He doesn't resist arrest. In John 18, it tells us, then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Notice there that the first thing they do when they arrest Jesus is to tie him up. They bind him. Now, of course, that's the normal procedure when you are dealing with a, a criminal or someone who's been arrested. 
It, it eliminates the danger of them running away or, or retaliating physically. But to be tied up is to be uncomfortable, painful, and humiliated. I guess you've probably seen those moments when, when someone is arrested and a, a, a prisoner is taken and they, they, they always use handcuffs. And it's always interesting to me that people will almost always try to hide their face from the cameras. The shame is just too much. Well, he goes before Annas, and this is almost what I would call a pre-trial. It's, it's there in order to set things up for, for what is to come when, when Jesus will come before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. And so then Matthew then recounts what happens in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court made up of 71 of Israel's elders. Now, they would have been there in the middle of a semicircle they would have formed. The elders would, would sit around and two or three of them would be clerks and, and then their observers, if there were any, would be behind them. And so Jesus would have been brought right into the middle of that powerful body and put on trial. But most of them, think about it, were hostile from the beginning. They had already made their decision about Jesus because he was a threat to their power. He had not come through their system. He had not gone to their schools. He had not abided by their customs. And his popularity was an affront to their own pride. And so I think it's interesting that when they bring this, this second trial before the Sanhedrin, they do it at night. That in itself was against Jewish law. It was not supposed to happen under the cover of darkness, but they have some important things that they are trying to do. And in fact, they will hold their, their guilty verdict until dawn to give it some sense of, 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 of a, a credibility. But they come up, this group, with the most absurd uh, 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 verdict, I guess you'd say, in history, and that is this, that Jesus is guilty. Now, how did they do it? Well, if you read the account, you realize they hire false witnesses. Problem was, they weren't very good at it. They couldn't get their story straight. The stories didn't match up. Until and finally, in Matthew 26, verse 61, we read, two false witnesses literally come forward and agreed on the same thing. The two guys said, I will be able, this fellow said, I will be able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer this charge? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? And then Jesus remains silent. The evidence is flimsy. It certainly didn't warrant death. And so as you read this account, you realize something extraordinary happens. The presiding judge, the high priest, does the extraordinary thing of taking the initiative for the prosecution. So in verse 63, it says, The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Now, in our day, if you're in a criminal court, you don't have to answer. If the answer is going to incriminate you, you can take the Fifth Amendment. But in that day, if the high priest said to you, I charge you under oath, it was your responsibility. You had to answer 
Caiaphas here knew the accusation of rebuilding the temple wasn't enough to warrant death, wasn't enough to warrant execution. So he goes to right to the heart of the matter and he says, Jesus, do you claim to be the Messiah or not? And Jesus says, you have said so. And then he uses apocalyptic imagery. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. And at that, the high priest has a fit. He tears his clothes. He says, we don't need to hear anymore. The trial is over. This is blasphemy, obviously. And they all agree he's worthy of death. So they spit on his face. They strike him with their fists, blindfold him, and they say, tell us, Messiah, who hit you? You, the prophet. And I can't help but think when their foul saliva began to, to run down his cheeks into his beard and when they began to, to take those fists and offer their blows, don't you think that there was a legion of angels ready to take the sword at the Father's command in a moment? But heaven was silent and Jesus restrained. At dawn, they dragged him to Pilate, another trial, the Roman governor. It was the Romans who had to execute people. Uh, the Jews had no authority to do that. The problem was the Jews had a problem. The, the Romans didn't care about the charge of blasphemy. Caesar recognized many gods, and so they wouldn't execute Jesus based on the idea that he had spoken against the Jewish God. Many of them had done the same thing, so the accusation had to be changed. And so if you read the scripture, you realize, you realize what they told Pilate. They said, Pilate, hey, this man claims to be the king of the Jews, and we have no king but Caesar. Now think about the irony there. He's spreading insurrection, telling people not to pay their taxes. Well, that was a falsehood. Pilate ends up being rather impressed, however, with Jesus' composure. Normally, when men would be brought before him in a capital crime situation, they would beg for their life or they would angrily curse. But there was something about the regalness of Jesus, I think, which impressed Pilate. And it actually put him in a very difficult position. Especially when he learns that his wife had a dream and said, don't have anything to do with this innocent man. Leave him alone. Pilate, however, does something interesting. He finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. He thinks this is his out. That's King Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happens to be in town. Why? For the Passover. So he decides to send Jesus to Herod. Herod, in Luke 23, is excited to see Jesus. He's heard a lot about this magic man. Maybe Jesus will put on a show. Maybe Jesus will do some miracles. But Jesus doesn't say a word to Herod. Doesn't do a thing. Herod gets bored and tired, and so his soldiers flog him, ridicule him, mock him, dress him in a robe, and send him back to Pilate. Pilate's got nowhere. He's tried to weasel himself out of this situation. 
And of course, we read here that the Passover is going on. And, and so the, the city is teeming with Jews who have come to celebrate. The streets are full of people. The, the idea of Jewish patriotism is running high. Tension is thick in the air. And so the tradition has become that the Romans, who were rather clever at these things, had a tradition of releasing a Jewish prisoner to the people to kind of appease the crowd, to ease the tension, earn some good PR. And so Pilate, seeing another opportunity, trying to get out once again, asked the crowd, who do you want me to release? Jesus of Nazareth or Barabbas? And don't you think he's chosen the most despicable criminal he could find? Mark tells us that he was a murderer. I'm sure Pilate thought surely they would choose Jesus to be released. But to his amazement and to the work of the high priests and the elders, they cried out for Barabbas. Pilate says, but he's committed no crime. He can see that. In fact, Pilate has Jesus whipped brutally so so much so that a lot of scholars say that many men didn't survive that brutality the the whip of uh, of bones and and shards of metal they he thought Pilate thought all bloodied certainly they would look and say this is enough we don't have to go any further but it wasn't and the crowd the crowd cried out all the more crucify him crucify him if you don't crucify him you're no friend of Caesar they said and so the most innocent man in history is condemned to die now I want you to think about that story and in some way relate it to your own because I think if we spend enough time there, one of, the, one of the things that we will gather is we will learn in our own way some lessons about how we are to deal with injustice and mistreatment. When we face unfairness, and I want to talk about that for just a few moments. First, I, I think one of the things that maybe we could take away from this story is, is that when you are mistreated, when I am mistreated, it's, it's not a bad thing to take some time to evaluate the circumstances, to look at them objectively, to, to back off for a moment. Now, it's important, in other words, to understand why did each of these people want Jesus to be crucified? I, I'm not trying to... to say they're off the hook but I think it's important to understand and we need to consider what is really going on the reality is Jesus threatened their way of thinking and living and the reality is that Jesus even today threatens our way of thinking and living what would you have done if you were in Jerusalem that day he laid claim to power that they did not have. And they didn't like it. And so they wanted to get rid of him. 
And I know a lot of people would just rather get rid of him from their own lives. To me, it is important to consider the fact that before Jesus faced all of these trials, he spent time with the Father in the garden. He prayed. He spoke with God. He spent time with God. And I think that's instructive to us because before you object to how badly you've got it or how you're being abused or how you think something is wrong, I think there's wisdom in learning to step back, talk to God, maybe talk with friends, and with humility try to understand what others are thinking. Where are they coming from? And in fact, be open to the fact that you might be missing something. I'll give you an example. I, I tend to get very impatient in a restaurant if I don't get the kind of service I'm expecting. I get indignant really quickly, and that's to my shame. But my wife is always really good about giving me that look and reminding me, you know, Jeff, they're probably short-staffed. They're doing the best they can. Imagine if you were doing that job. She has this way of just turning it all around and helping me think it through a little bit differently because we, we can think that we're the victim of injustice when in reality, we're really blinded by the circumstances. Jesus could have used all the forces of heaven and it would all be done right there. They could have been crispy critters in a moment. But he was compassionate, even though they were doing the worst of evil. And that's just a reminder this morning, before you explode about injustice that you've been receiving, maybe just take a step back. Take a deep breath. Go before the Father. Take time to evaluate the circumstances, and you might save yourself a lot of embarrassment. 1 Peter 4.15 reminds us this. This is so wise. If you suffer, Peter says, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. That's not what we are as the people of God. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear the name. Now, let me give you something else to think about. The second lesson I would offer you is this. If you are mistreated, and you will be mistreated, don't be surprised by the depravity of humanity. People in this world are corrupt. Nobody yet can explain to me really why Russia needed to invade Ukraine, killing so many of their own people, never mind the, the people of Ukraine, the raping of women, the ripping of children from their own parents. Jeremiah 17.9 reminds us, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? truth is without Jesus most people look out for number one and if it means for me to climb over the top of you to get where I want to go then goodbye I'm climbing over you 
when you're dealing with the devil don't be surprised you get that sharp end of the pitchfork that's what he does we see with Jesus how he was victimized by the religious people of his day you know they claimed to be good they had some really impressive credentials but their personal interests took precedent over his life and doing the right thing And I'm reminded this morning, it is even more traumatic for us when people who are supposed to be good, who are supposed to be trustworthy, people we believe in, turn on us. So hard. Spouse has an affair. A church member cheats you. A friend betrays you. That's when it's so tough teacher and author Beth Moore recently came out with a biography titled My Knotted Up Life a memoir for years she's let it be known that she had suffered sexual abuse as a child but in that book she finally related it was time to reveal the perpetrator and it was her own dad We live in a wicked world. People do wicked things. And we can't be surprised by that. But what is amazing is we have this inherent sense of justice. We know it's wrong. It shouldn't happen. 1 Peter 4.12 says... Don't be surprised at the painful trial you were suffering as though you are suffering something strange. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. When God's people suffer, when members of God's family suffer, somehow we are sharing in the redemption of what Jesus Christ has done and endured. And in fact, we are called to rejoice. I don't understand all of that. But I believe it. Let me give you a third lesson. When when you are treated unfairly, when you are mistreated, keep your composure. (laughs) Jesus did. Isn't it remarkable how Jesus could stand for the truth and yet he kept his poise. He remembered who he was. You know, you can be 100% right in principle and completely wrong in attitude and tone. (laughs) I see that, especially among the people of God. I, I see it, my heart aches when I see a Christian who's right. I want to agree with them, but... They pretend how we deal with others in being right doesn't matter. And in that, we give Satan a stronghold, a victory, and it's wrong. We can be absolutely right and terribly wrong. It's a rare person, then, who can suffer disappointment and mistreatment and still be full of grace. 
Now, sometimes that means that we just need to keep silent. And, and, and you don't say anything. Sometimes it means that you speak the truth, but you do it with kindness and sincerity and compassion. Sometimes it means that you go to court and you let justice prevail so that, that you can protect others. It, it doesn't mean that you're a doormat, but I think it does mean that you remember who you are and what you're about and who, who, who you want to represent. Listen, Jesus loves that person who offended you. He died for them. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And we are called as the people of God to reflect the grace of Jesus Christ, not sometimes, but all the time. I heard someone make the observation that Jesus in Matthew 5 says, if you offend someone... Go to them to make it right. But then, in Matthew 18, he says, if someone offends you, go to them to make it right. They were making the point, in either case, Jesus says, it's my responsibility as a follower of Jesus to work toward reconciliation, to work toward making things right. Jesus taught some radical ideas and I wonder how the world, how the community of the church alone would be changed if we really took him seriously. Somebody said, uh, somebody says, give me your, your, your coat, give them your cloak too, Jesus said. Somebody says, go with me a mile, you go with them too, Jesus said. And by doing so, you bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. He said, if you if they strike you, turn the other cheek. Keep your composure. But I think the hardest lesson might be this one. And it's this. When you've been mistreated, trust God even though you don't understand. You know, things happen in life, and they, we could hear testimonies this morning about injustice, mistreatment. Things happen that aren't in our plans, and in those moments, we're inclined to blame God. God, I've tried to be good. I, in church on Sunday, I joined a small group. I, I, I paid my tithes and offerings. I park a little bit further away so that others can, can park closer to the building at church. And yet I, I look around and I see people who don't go to church and, and they seem so much better off. I, I see others who, who don't want anything to do with you and they seem to have so few problems compared to what I have. What do we do with that? This week, uh, we hosted uh, uh, Michael and Catherine Linville, the uh, missionaries who are serving on behalf of EFM, Evangelical Friends Mission, in northern India. They live at the base of the Himalayan mountains there. They have six kids, ages one to ten, and a seventh on the way. It was quite a, quite a crew. They uh, moved to India in 2015 to witness for Jesus. 
In fact, I thought it was interesting uh, when they told the story, the way they determined the village that they were going to live in was actually through a taxi cab driver. Now, they knew this, that a taxi cab driver in India are not always the most honest, and this taxi cab driver wasn't, and they got in this car, and he wanted to take them the long way around to get them to their destination so they could be built by, uh, out of more money. However, it was through that process that God showed them exactly where they were supposed to, to set up shop and find a place to live. God used that injustice, that mistreatment, for good. You, 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 you think that uh, these young people and their children, are, man, they're, they're sweet, they're, they're intelligent, they're serving God. You'd think that God would just make it easy for them. And here they go, and they go into India. They are living in a 900-square-foot apartment on the fourth floor with again seven kids to, uh, total these people have sacrificed so much for jesus and he neither rather nonchalantly mentioned at one point you know we owned a home back in kansas while we were in india it got leveled by a tornado i'm thinking god why you know, when, when you're tempted to get angry with God because life doesn't seem to be treating you favorably. I get it. But would you stop and look again at the final hours of Jesus? He was abused and mistreated in one incident after another and by the way, God did not intervene. But he was not unfair. He was not silent. And he was not hiding. He was permitting his son to endure all of that so our sins could be paid for and forgiven. Now, what do we learn from that? You see, God and God alone can take injustice and reverse it and make it into the most beautiful, powerful evidence of his love and grace imaginable. It was a terrible thing what happened by sending Jesus to the cross. It was a beautiful thing what happened by sending Jesus to the cross. Only God can do that. And because he did, this morning we have hope and forgiveness. And we know that all things can work together for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, I know that many in this room right now are going through their own trials. Jesus went through five separate ones in one night and yet each time he kept his composure he knew his purpose he went to the cross because he loved everyone in this room 
I pray, Lord, when we face our trials, we would remember what Jesus did for us. He didn't deserve to go there. The verdict that was given was unjust and inconceivable. But, Lord, he did it for me, and he did it for everyone in this room. I pray, Lord, that in our own trials, we would learn to trust you, even though none of it might make sense that, Lord, somehow you are going to accomplish your purposes, your grace, your mercy. Lord, do a great reversal in our lives. Help us to see your glory. And when we suffer, Lord, may we do it rejoicing, knowing, Lord, that you will work all things together for good. We give you praise because of all that Jesus has done for us. We ask this in his name.